0: Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let me pray. Father, we ask, as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would work in such a way that he would illumine our minds, those who are dead in their sins, those who aren't trusting in your son, those those who have false or temporary faith, would be brought to true saving faith in your son. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in those of us who have saving faith as a gift of your spirit, in your Son, that you would use this Word to cause us to persevere, that your Spirit would be at work through this means of grace, growing us in faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know that we live in a day, we live in a day when the vast majority of Americans, still call themselves Christians. We as a culture generally like Jesus, at least what we, or who we think he is. Many assent to the truth of Jesus' life, death on a cross, and resurrection. They say they agree it's true. But we also know that many believe in either a kind of cheap grace Or some new form of legalism. In other words, they either want to make Jesus into a dispenser of grace who gives them license to sin all they want. Or they want to make Jesus into a new Moses. Kind of a lighter, gentler Moses, right? A kind of cosmic Santa Claus who does good to those who are good. But no worries, because the standards are now pretty low. We know we're saved by faith in Jesus, but our understanding of the nature of faith is shallow. For us, faith equals agreement that something is true. What is faith? I believe that's true. I agree it's true. That's how we see faith. I believe he's real. I believe the story's true. I prayed a prayer once. On the whole, I'm a decent person, so I'm good to go, right? I'm good to go. It is this understanding that causes us to be confused by commands like the one we have in Hebrews 4.1. It's this false understanding of faith that causes confusion when we come to something like Hebrews 4.1. Look at what it says there. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Notice the command. The command is, you should fear. Let us fear. Fear what? Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There is a promise of entering his rest that still stands. That's what he's saying. We're promised this eternal rest in him. And while this promise of eternal rest still stands, we should fear that we might fail to reach it. We're being commanded to fear. Lest we fail to reach it. This failed to reach it that he says there, when he says, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, is actually language taken from something like a person running in a marathon, in a race. They start the race, but they fail to reach the end of the race. They fail to reach it. This failing to reach it is the idea that if I start the race, then that's enough. See, I ran a little ways down the marathon, if you will, path. And as I was running it, I saw a nice tree with some tables and some good food, and I took that exit. Or maybe more accurately, he stood at the starting line and said, looks like a good course. I think I'll enter. I'll get a number. I'll put it on my chest. And then... He notices there's a nice table and the race is on TV there and there's some good food. I think I'll sit there and watch the race. And then at the end of the race, he wonders I entered, and just like everyone in our culture, so don't I get a trophy for participating? (laughs) See, God gives a trophy to everyone, right? I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle. I got baptized, I went to church regularly for a long time, I confessed Jesus, I even did some family Bible studies, I voted pro-life, I stayed married and raised my kids faithfully, I was an honest businessman, I was a stay-at-home mom, a homeschool mom, even a classical education homeschool mom. I sacrificed to send my kids to Christian schools. I went on short-term mission trips. I tithed. I was an elder or deacon. I was a pastor. Therefore, how can the Holy Spirit be talking to me? How can he be talking to me when he says, let us fear, lest any of you should have failed to reach it? Yet look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Look down at Chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Notice, you're striving to enter that rest. Interesting contrast of language. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience we saw in Israel. Go to chapter 12 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. I'm skipping over lots of other examples for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore... Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, the cloud of witnesses are those in chapter 11 as he walks through Old Testament saints who persevered in the faith, regardless of what they faced. They persevered in the faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, hear this. Faith in Christ enters the race and runs to the end. True faith perseveres. True faith finishes the race. The faith that is given by the Holy Spirit, when I say true faith, this is the faith that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, sets its mind on Christ and keeps running toward Him until it grasps the prize. Now I'm not arguing, please hear me, I'm not arguing that true faith never slips up Or never stumbles. I am saying that it never finally fails. It always perseveres to the end. If one stumbles, he gets up and keeps running. If one takes a detour to some nice shaded chairs under a tree, he realizes his error and he gets out of the chair and gets back on the path and keeps running. Listen to how the London Baptist Confession of Faith expresses this in its chapter on saving faith, making a distinction between weak faith and temporary faith. Listen to what it says. This faith may exist in varying degrees. This saving faith may exist in varying degrees so that it may be either weak or strong. Yet, even in its weakest form... It is different in kind or nature from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. Please understand this distinction. Please follow this distinction. I'm not arguing that we should fear, and I don't think the author of Hebrews is arguing, that we should fear having weak faith in Christ. Let us be afraid lest any of you should have weak faith in Christ. That's not what he's saying. I'm arguing we should fear, and I think the author of Hebrews is arguing, we should fear having temporary faith in Christ. Let us fear lest any of us have temporary faith in Christ. In other words, we're being commanded to fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to complete the race. We should fear temporary and thus false faith. So this morning, I want to begin by making two arguments, really from this text with regard to faith and rest, or perseverance and rest, and then I want to talk about two concerns that I have for us in this regard. So first, let me start with two arguments. Here's the first argument. The fear being commanded is fear of temporary faith in Christ. That The fear he's commanding here is fear of temporary faith in Christ. Look at Hebrews 4.1 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Listen, this whole fear is kind of unnerving for us to be commanded as Christians to fear. It sort of unnerves us, especially in our modern ears. It sounds judgmental and harsh. See, God is love, and, and perfect love casts out fear. There, there is no fear in love. We didn't receive a spirit of fear, so why are we being commanded here to fear? We're commanded, let us fear, lest any of you should have failed to reach it. What's the it? that you're failing to reach, the it is the promise of rest. We should fear that we would fail to reach that promised rest. Now look at verse 2 in this connection. For, here's your explanation, because you're being compared with Old Testament saints and Old Testament unbelievers. For, good news came to us just as to them. The them is the Old Testament people under Moses' And Joshua, good news contextually. If you want to see that, go back to Russell and Jason's sermons preceding this one. Good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's a reference to the Old Testament people he was just talking about in Hebrews chapter 3, particularly in verses 7 through 11, who did not listen and believe. The Holy Spirit spoke to them through Moses Through Joshua, they didn't listen. They didn't believe. The gospel, notice what he's saying, the gospel was preached to them. The same gospel preached to you was preached to them. If you want to know how people in the Old Testament are being saved, the author of Hebrews is telling you right here. The same gospel preached to you was preached to them. Same gospel. The gospel was preached to them, but they did not listen. They did not believe, and therefore they did not obey. Look again at verse 2. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believe. If you remember the Old Testament story where Israel is in the wilderness going toward the promised land, many of them do not believe and therefore are disobedient, but some of them do believe. For example, Joshua and Caleb believe. And he's saying, but many of those people in Israel were not united by faith with them, those who did believe like Joshua and Caleb. They weren't united in faith with them. They were a part of the physical people of God as the physical offspring of Abraham, just as Joshua and Caleb were. But they were only the offspring of Abraham according to the flesh. They did not receive the promise because they did not listen and believe. Their unbelief was evidenced in their disobedience. And the Holy Spirit' saying to us, "Listen, you're part of the visible church body. You're part of the visible church body. Just like Israel, the church in the wilderness was a part of the visible church body, yet only some in the visible church body were believing, and some were not. You're a part of the visible church body. But don't let that be external only. You need to listen and, obey, and, and believe, you need to obey. It's not enough. It's not enough to be united with people here in the church by external matters like public profession of faith or baptism or membership. That isn't sufficient. You must believe. Please hear the warning. Here's the warning fear. Be afraid, lest you fail. To reach that rest. This is a warning to the whole church. To fear. And what are you fearing? False profession of faith. What you're fearing? To fear that some of us may be nothing more than hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs. Look nice on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones. Let us fear being those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Please hear me. You are not being commanded to fear weak faith. For weak faith still apprehends an almighty Savior. Still grasps onto an almighty Savior. And you're not saved by faith. Do you understand that? I think we hear saved by faith and we think, Um, I'm saved by faith, as if the faith is what does the saving, as if that's the virtue before God that saves us. You are saved by Christ through faith, even weak faith. Weak faith in an almighty Savior is saving. What is being commanded here is this. You'll be commanded to fear temporary faith in Christ. False faith. Faith that does not endure. Let us fear temporary faith in Christ. See, we're on a narrow path in Christ. Finding our rest in Him. And looking toward heaven, toward that restful land, as John Bunyan has it in the Pilgrim's Progress, toward that celestial city. And we're striving down that straight and narrow path, who is Christ, toward That celestial city. Let us fear coming up short and not finishing the race due to our own sinful unbelief and our desire to pursue worldly distractions. Let us fear our heart's temptation to lay back and and wait to arrive at the end because we've been commanded to run, not to be passive. Hear that? Let us fear our heart's temptation to look for side roads and resting places other than on the narrow path, for those are only sinful and idolatrous distractions. Let us fear our heart's temptation to listen to companions on the broad road, the road that leads to destruction. Like Christian in Pilgrim's progress on the way to the heavenly city, we must not stop running down the narrow path. We must not. Let us be those who listen to the gospel message and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and obey his word. What he is saying is this. Do not be like those folks in the wilderness who heard the gospel proclaimed to them and yet didn't listen and didn't believe and didn't obey. And so never, never found their rest. They started the journey, but merely had a temporary faith. Thus they fell due to unbelief. They fell due to unbelief. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. They had temporary faith. They started down the road, but they didn't believe. They got distracted by idols, by sin, by the world and the flesh and the devil. Second point, the second argument I want to give you is that not only is this is true faith enduring that he's pointing out, but that Christ himself is the rest they failed to reach. I want you to understand. What is the rest they failed to reach? I think we hear rest and we think heaven. Heaven's the rest they failed to reach. Canaan, the land of Canaan, is the rest they failed to reach, right? No. Canaan is just typological. But it's not first a type pointing you to heaven, it's first a type. Pointing you to Christ, in whom is your rest. And heaven is just fullness of joy with Christ forevermore. It's the consummation of what you have in him. Christ himself is the rest they failed to reach. Note what he's saying. They did not believe, and so they did not enter his rest. They failed to believe the gospel preached to them, and thus they failed to reach his rest. They were not permitted to enter the promised land. And even worse, they failed to enter that Sabbath rest which is found in Christ alone. Now, how do I know that's what is meant? Let's walk through Hebrews 4, 3 through 10 and hear the argument being made. And we're just going to walk through this kind of quickly. Look at Hebrews 4, 3. For we who have believed, for we who have believed, enter that rest. Now pay attention to that, the way he uses this phrase, that rest. We who have believed entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, in the in Psalm 95, he said that you shall not enter your re- his rest if you don't believe, and we've believed, so we enter that rest. That rest that we enter was preached both was preached both to them, the Old Testament Jews in the days of Moses and Joshua, and was preached in this day to these Hebrew Christians, and frankly, by the working of the Holy Spirit, is being preached to us now. Whoever has believed, notice that phrase, we who have believed, whoever has believed, has entered. They enter that rest. But whoever has not believed has not entered that rest. That rest can't, therefore, ultimately be a reference to entering the land of Canaan. Because when you believe, you enter it. When you don't believe, you don't. Now, he's going to prove this in the next phrase and through verse 4. Look what he says. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. When he says somewhere spoken, it's basically saying, you all know I'm talking about Genesis 2, right? It's a way of saying, this text is so familiar to you, I don't have to tell you where it is. He's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That rest was available, what he's saying, in the garden at the beginning from Genesis 2. That rest did not start being available as they were on their way to Canaan. It wasn't only available once they entered Canaan. It was available in Genesis 2. When God rested from his works, but because they would not listen, namely Adam and Eve, they would not believe, they would not obey, he swore they shall not enter my rest. See, when God created everything, He rested from his work of creation. He created man to enjoy. Now now notice this. It's the only day that doesn't doesn't end with a morning and evening reference. It's like this endless day. He created man to enjoy that Sabbath rest and to delight in him and in his work. I've created you delight in me and in my works to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth full of image bearers of God who delight in me and in my works. That's rest. But man sinned and did not enter that blessed Sabbath rest. He did not delight in the Lord and his works. Rather, he delighted himself in the forbidden fruit. He chased after the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And since he did not find his Sabbath rest in delighting in the Lord, he was cursed with laborious work that produces thorns and thistles. Remember that in the curse? But God, who was rich in mercy, gave him a gospel promise. And he gave that gospel promise to them in the middle of, of his cursing them in Genesis 3.15. There is the seed of the woman who will come, and he'll crush the head of the serpent. He will be the one who brings rest once again to God's people. And this gospel promise was progressively unfolded in the Old Testament until it was shown forth in Christ the seed of the woman would come and give his people true Sabbath rest and delight in his blessed presence forevermore. And he narrowed that promise of the seed of the woman to the offspring of Abraham, or from humanity to the nation of Israel, to Isaac and to Jacob. And yet, in the midst of doing that, many of Abraham's physical offspring, many in Israel, failed to believe the promise they failed to trust the Lord and believe the gospel. Therefore, we read what we do in Hebrews 4, verses 5 and 6. Look there. Verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews 4. And again, in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, quoting Psalm 95. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter Because of disobedience. See, those folks under Moses and Joshua did not believe, which is evidenced by their disobedience. And so they did not enter that blessed Sabbath rest. Therefore, the Holy Spirit spoke prophetically through David in Psalm 95 about a coming Sabbath rest. Look at verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, so long afterward, what is he referring to there? Here's what he's saying. In Hebrews 3, he's telling you, pay attention to Israel in the wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan and their unbelief that issued in disobedience. Pay attention to that as an example to you. David is referencing it in Psalm 95 as an example. They don't enter God's rest because they don't believe, because they're disobedient. Therefore, they don't enter God's rest. They didn't enter it. Those who believed, did. Those who didn't believe, did not. He's saying, follow their example. Pay attention to their example. But now, the author of Hebrews is saying, I'm not going to use Psalm 95 as an example any longer. I'm now going to show you that David was actually prophesying. It's not just an example of looking back, but David was using that example as a basis or a ground for prophecy. They didn't enter my rest. But there's a day that's appointed where you may. Pointing forward. Look what he goes on to say. Appointing a certain day. Again, he appoints a certain day today. That's the day we're now in, is what he's saying. That the eschaton, the age, the end that we're in now. It's appointed today, saying through David. So long afterward, in the word's already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Listen, they heard God's voice in the wilderness. They heard God's promise of the gospel, and they hardened their hearts and did not listen, and they did not obey. And he's saying, David's now speaking to you prophetically. Look back at their example And understand he appointed another day today, which you may enter as rest. Don't harden your hearts when the Holy Spirit talks to you. When he speaks to you, listen, believe, obey. Don't harden your hearts. Here's the thing. God's people failed to enter that Sabbath rest at creation. God's people failed to enter that Sabbath rest at Canaan. But God spoke in Psalm 95 of another day later on in which that Sabbath rest would be entered. Look at verse 9 and 10, chapter 4. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, works as God did from his. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 are saying that Christ is our Sabbath rest. I I actually find the ESV's translation of verse 10 unfortunate, unhelpful, not the best translation. I want you to hear how the King James Version translates, because I think they get at the nature of the Greek, and not just syntactically, grammatically what's happening, but semantically, the flow of the argument. They get at the nature of it better. Okay, grammatically, either translation is possible. The question is, which one answers the flow of the argument better? Listen how the King James says it. I want you to hear verse 9 in the ESV, and then I'm going to read King James for verse 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now here comes verse 10 from the King James. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. What he's saying is Christ ceased from his works of redeeming us as the incarnate son even as God ceased from his works of creating us. Look, when God created all things and rested, it's not like he said he got a cot and laid down and went to sleep. It says he rested on the seventh day. He was still at work providentially governing all things. It's talking about he he, he rested from his work of creation and said, look... I have demonstrated my glory in everything I've made. Now, to rest is to simply delight in who I am and what I've done. And you failed to do that. Christ came and he worked. And what was his work? The work of redemption. And he got to the end and he rested. I don't mean that Christ is not interceding for you even now, nor that he's not at work to save many throughout the world by his Spirit even now. I mean that Christ fulfilled all righteousness and took our penalty upon himself. At the cross, Christ proclaimed, It is finished, the debt is paid in full. Christ exhausted the curse of God against us on our behalf, and thus we find our Sabbath rest in Christ. That is why Hebrews starts the way that it starts when it says in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He rested Christ is that rest who was proclaimed in the Old Testament and New Testament. He is our delight and our rest before God. Listen, in everything God made, if you were here for the Dolezal Conference, he, he, he portrayed this so beautifully when he went back to, I think, Augustine and took the example of a prism. God is pure light. We cannot see him. He's too much for us to ever comprehend. But he's created all these things. And these things that he's created are like a prism through which that pure light passes and we see the refraction of his glory in all of his wonderful creation. And we rejoice. We delight in him. That's what we're created to do. But what, you, what I want you to understand is when God the Son condescended and took humanity to himself and kept the law perfectly in our place and went to the cross and paid the debt due us there and rose from the dead It sent his spirit. God's glory was refracted through him. And just as we were supposed to delight in the creation and all things, now we're to delight in him who is our Sabbath rest. That's why Hebrews 3.14 says that those who endure share in Christ. This has always been the gospel proclaimed in Scripture. This is the gospel that many in the Old Testament failed to believe and thus they failed to reach their Sabbath rest in him. This is the gospel that we are being warned to believe lest we fail to reach our Sabbath rest in Christ as well. So what do I do with this? How do I respond? It's really simple. I trust the Lord. I look to Christ I find him not only to be the one who forgives my sins, but to be all my delight. He's my great reward. He's my righteousness, my justification. He's my wisdom. He's everything. And I keep looking to him every hour of every day. I surround myself with those who also believe in him. And we stir one another up to love and good deeds. And we keep listening to and trusting in him. We regularly listen to his voice as he speaks by his spirit through his word. However, my concern is that folks often don't do this. We don't. And so this leads to two concerns I want to exhort you to avoid. Two concerns, I hope to cover them quickly, that I want to exhort you to avoid. Here's the first one. Avoid cultivating a false humility that causes you not to engage in running hard the race set before us. Avoid cultivating a false humility that causes you to not engage in running the race that is set before us. The person who does this says something like this. My sin is, is, is greater than Christ's sacrifice. I'll never have enough faith. I might as well just give up. I'm afraid of even beginning the race because I know I'll stumble and fall. I mean, that sounds humble, but it's actually prideful. Prideful. That's not the fear being commanded here. The fear of being commanded here is fear of temporary faith in Christ. The fear that my faith will never be enough is too weak is not the, fa- the fear that's given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never gives you a fear that says to you, you won't amount to enough, your works will not be enough, your faith will not be enough. Um, Christ is good but you need to really improve upon him. And you're not improving upon him enough with your faith and your goodness. The Holy Spirit never gives you that fear. Never gives you that fear. That's an ungodly fear. The Holy Spirit does not give you a spirit of fear to fall back into, the slavery, into slavery to the law and sin and death. The Holy Spirit speaks into your heart that Jesus kept the law and conquered sin and death for you. And now you no longer need to fear sin and and death because Jesus is enough for you. The perfect love of the Father in Christ has cast out the fear of punishment. The fear of judgment and damnation. The Holy Spirit has poured this gracious love of God into your heart. He has given you the spirit of adoption by whom you call God your Father. He gives you the spirit of confidence that you are Christ's and Christ is yours. Listen, the fear of sin and the law and death and judgment is the fear that the Spirit of God removes from believers. The fear of death that Jesus conquered for you already. Hebrews 2, chapter, four, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It's the fear he conquered for you already The fear of sin, the law, death, and judgment is the fear the Spirit of God removes from believers, and he replaces that fear with the fear of the Lord. Christian faith will cause you, spirit-wrought faith will cause you to look away from yourself and to Christ, not to look away from Christ and more deeply into yourself, The Holy Spirit is always testifying to you about him. He's never testifying to you. Yep, that's enough faith. You finally got it. That was enough good works. You finally reached it. He tells you, he's enough. He's enough. He's enough. You're never enough. You're worse than you know. Look to him. Look to him. Look to him. This leads to the second concern I exhort you to, ha- to avoid, which is <clears throat> sort of the flip side of this coin. Avoid cultivating a false confidence, a false confidence that does not engage in running hard in the race set before us. Notice this, both of these fail to engage running hard in the race set before us. Avoid cultivating a false confidence. In other words, we can have the tendency to basically see the grace of God as a license to sin. We believe in a kind of cheap grace that says, I'm not so bad. God isn't so holy. I'm covered by the blood of Christ. But the Holy Spirit does not remove the fear of judgment and damnation and replace it with FOMO. You know what that is? I learned this from kids now. The fear of missing out. The fear of missing out on what? On what the world and the flesh and the devil offers. I know FOMO because Mikey always tells me he has FOMO. I have the fear of missing out. What are you guys doing without me? Right? Listen, here's the point. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, I'm going to remove from you the fear of death and judgment and give you the fear of missing out on all the world the flesh and the devil have to offer you. The Holy Spirit gives you the fear of the Lord. As in the last point, those with faith fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to trust in him, to listen to his voice, to believe his word, to walk in his ways, to know that he is God and we are not. The fear of the Lord is trust in him alone to to keep his covenant love and forgive our sins. Just briefly, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. If you know your Psalms, Psalms is just about in the middle of your Bible, not quite. Probably Isaiah's right in the middle. I guess it depends on how much commentary you have built into your text. But <clears throat> Psalm 130. I had about 45 texts picked out, but I saw Brandon was coming and presenting, so I cut them back to like three. <clears throat> so, so you're welcome. <laughs> Psalm, Psalm 130, <laughs> a song of ascent. Out of the depths, look at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now look what he says. Fascinating. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting? Think about, I look to you and I know forgiveness and that causes me to fear. To fear you. The forgiveness you offer me, that you give me, causes me to fear you. This is not the fear of judgment and death that Jesus has removed from you. This is the fear of the Lord. Look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Look at verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre, or the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who Hope in his steadfast love. Notice that parallel. To fear him is to hope in his steadfast love. His covenantal love. The fear of the Lord is to hope in his covenantal love. To trust in the forgiveness of sins that he gives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of Christian wisdom. Proverbs 1-7. Precisely because it drives us to delight in God's Word, to delight in God's law. Look back at Psalm 111. Psalm 111. And look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. First, now look down to Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So you might recognize that the fear of the Lord is to trust in his covenantal love, to see him as the one who forgives sins, and to love his commandments, his word, to delight in him. And therefore, because you're delighting in him, you're delighting in what he says. You know it's wisdom. You might recognize, though, that Israel failed to fear the Lord in this way. They failed to. They failed to listen, to believe, and to obey. And you might recognize that you have failed in fearing the Lord properly as well. Thus it's important that we understand why we find our rest in Christ. It is because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, listen, because the incarnate Son had this fear of the Lord that we find our Sabbath rest in Him. Because He had this fear of the Lord that we find our Sabbath rest in Him. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. It's almost dead in the middle of your Bibles. Listen to what he says in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now mind you, this is being said written to a people who are now in exile because of unbelief and disobedience, who've not listened to Moses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now look at what he gives. More is said there, but look down at verse 10. In that day, when this root of Jesse comes, the root of Jesse, the one who, who delights in the fear of the Lord, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He is the one who fears the Lord, and thus He is our eternal Sabbath rest. And since the new covenant was cut in His flesh with His blood for His people, and His Spirit unites us to Him through faith, the Holy Spirit gives to us the fear of the Lord as well. That's why we read what we do in Jeremiah 32, just listen to this, 32, 39, in this prophecy about the the new covenant. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of, the Lord, of me, the Lord, in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, we who fear the Lord are precisely those who rest in Christ. We look to him, we trust him, we obey him, we honor him. We want to walk with him all the days of our life. This fear of the Lord is something we ought to walk in all the days of our lives. And we're being told quite clearly, if you don't fear the Lord and find your rest in him, then you ought to be afraid that your faith is temporary and will only damn you will only damn you. Let me finish just by reading 1 Peter 1, 17. You don't have to turn there. Just li- listen. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Father, we pray that you would work in us in such a way by your Spirit that we would fear temporary faith. That we would trust in and rest in your Son. That we would grow in the fear of the Lord, a delight in who you are, a desire to listen to what you say. To believe you and to obey. That we would know that Christ is our eternal Sabbath rest. And we'd find all our joy and hope in him. For the sake of your name. Amen.